Good morning. Um, and happy Palm Sunday. We, we have a tendency to commemorate and celebrate Palm Sunday because it was the uh, remembrance of Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem on a Passover, the triumphal entry of Jesus. As uh, Aaron mentioned earlier, the people quoted Hosanna. Now, prophecy told us that Messiah had to come on a Passover, and Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem on a Passover week. Today marks the beginning of Passover week for Jews all over the world, and it'll end uh, this week at the end of the, of the week on Friday night specifically with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll find people all over the world reclining in their homes to commemorate what lawfully they're required to annually, a festival or a feast that reminds them of the Exodus where they were taken out of the bondage of slavery and led through the wilderness to the place that God had promised for them, the promised land, a precursor to their coming Messiah, a precursor to what we know to be true in Jesus, that we were free of sin and the bondage of this world and led to eternal security or freedom forever salvation. It is interesting, as I was thinking about this week, how they prepare in the Jewish home, in the Hebrew culture, for this week specifically. They spend weeks leading up to it. It's an intentional deep clean called the removal of commits. Commits is leaven or yeast. And it's taken on many forms to this point, but basically it is yeast. Every crumb, they sweep their house nook and cranny to make sure it's removed because it was a their leaven. If you remember Jesus' words, they understood sin to be likened to leaven, self-rising, self-promotion. And today, so they do a deep clean in order to prepare for this week specifically to remove their house of all commits, all anything that could be self-rising, any bread, crumbs, salt that was spilled, dust. They remove it, and it's a deep clean to prepare and prepare their hearts for this week. As we enter Holy Week, which we call it, starting right here at Palm Sunday, it beckoned a question for me, and the question was this, what, what would it look like if Jesus came in our day instead of in the day that he came? What if he didn't come in their generation, but instead came in ours? Now, they don't recognize Jesus as Messiah, and so they'll celebrate this year, and they'll end on Friday night the, the dinner with a proclamation. That proclamation will be this. If not this year, because they're waiting for a Messiah who's foretold on Scripture to come at Passover, if he doesn't come this year, they'll say maybe next year in Jerusalem. Okay? And so they will again not see the Messiah this year because we trust that he has already come. But what if he hadn't already come? What if he came in our generation and not in the generation that he did? Let me ask you a more important question, maybe a little more piercing. What would we kill him for? Can I ask you? What would we kill him for? They killed him for being too not good enough. Would we, in fact, kill him for being too good? If he came today, would he find a generation and a culture, a society, completely and starkly opposite of the one that he, in fact, entered? Uh, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he entered a society that was deeply religious and moral, one that was so much so that the more holy you were, the more separatist you were. 
Their holiness depended on separation and segregation. It was considered admirable and revered to be so separate from common people, let alone society's scourge, that the further you were in proximity or mentality from these people, the closer you were to God. They were deeply religious and moral. This was their strive. Meanwhile, today, we are decidedly secular as a, as a globe. We've chosen to be a people completely free of the suffocating and judgmental constraints of religion. We are globally a people entirely immoral. We in the U.S. have become the punchline to all jokes internationally for the staple of moralism itself. Uh, give me a second. Let me think on this. Have you ever heard of a society that models its morals after Las Vegas? Or its, its relational culture shaped by Hollywood? It's religious construct designed by atheists. Did you know that just a few years ago, the fastest, one of the fastest growing churches in all of the globe was a church that was designed by an atheist comedian in England, and he intentionally planted these churches in the epicenters of all over the globe. Nashville was one of them. I was fully aware of this church because I had planted a church, and his church was less than two miles from mine. My church was growing. His was growing even faster. And it was designed intentionally as a joke. And it happened right here in Nashville, Music City, USA, the cultural epicenter for music to all of the globe, Christian Publishing, USA. Hello? Not a slam, just an assessment. Even here in Nashville, we are just as secular as our counterpart, like in London, who chose less than a decade ago to truly just become a society completely secular of anything religious. In Jesus' day, they killed him for not being good enough, not holy enough, not religious enough, not lawful enough. Today, I think we'd kill him for the exact opposite. I think we'd kill him just because he was too good and he had a moral compass whatsoever. Hello? In Mark 2 we find our passage for the day. I hope in these four verses, what we'll see is what I'm talking about. In Mark 2, chapter 13 through uh, 17, it says this, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, while he was reclining at the table of Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were, uh, when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this, told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this week, I rewrote that last statement by Jesus, and I think it becomes our statement for the day. It's going to be where I'll derive our points for today. So I want you to write this statement down, and like an English lesson, I'm going to break down each section if it's okay. Here it is. Jesus came to call the sinner or the convicted, to challenge the scribe or the self-righteous, and to conquer sin. First of all, Jesus came. This would allude that he had come from elsewhere. This would allude that he had come from a place that wasn't here. The religious leaders thought only to embrace his coming out of Bethlehem and Nazareth. 
And remember, they taught, as we've been discussing this uh, series for a few weeks now, that only good came from Jerusalem. So nothing good could come out of Nazareth, let alone the one, the one that was going to free the Israelite people and finally give them salvation, the Messiah, the promised one. Truth is, it didn't matter where he emerged on earth. Outside of that pesky little detail that needed to fulfill Scripture. Okay? Um, Because he wasn't from this earth. He created it. And so it didn't matter where he emerged, he was going to be the one. But he came out of Galilee because it was prophesied that their Messiah would come from Galilee and he would come on a Passover. Now... Let's look at just the last couple weeks of what Jesus has been doing in his ministry, what he's been showing us. There's a little bit of narrative being thread here. A few weeks, two weeks ago, we watched him walk into a house. Peter's mother-in-law is stricken with a fever that only God can remove because they believed that this was a fever that killed and this had been given her because God hated her. She had smited God, so God was smiting her back. The only person they knew on the planet could remove such a, such a fever was God himself. Jesus comes in and says, get up, and it departs from her. Last week, we meet, and we see Jesus is being brought a paralytic. A paralytic who cannot walk, his legs don't work, and his first response is, your sins are forgiven you. The response is, Who alone can forgive sin but God himself? So God alone removes the fever that kills. God alone removes sin. And Jesus says, kind of proving himself doubly God, not only can I forgive sin, and I have authority there, but I can perceive the thoughts of the Pharisees who have judged me already and said only God forgives sin before they even say a word. So here's the deal. To prove that I have authority to forgive sin because God alone forgives sin, thus I am God, I'm going to make this man's legs work. So get up and walk. And so he does both. Heals physically, spiritually, and he reads the minds of those around him, thus proving that he is God and God in our midst. It says that the people were amazed, they were astonished, they'd never seen anything like this, which leads to this story because this story is happening after he has left this house. The people are so astonished by what has taken place in the last two weeks as he's revealing himself that they have to get outside the confines of anything with walls. They have to get on the seashore where there's no walls so the crowd can continue to gather. Jesus has revealed himself as supernatural, as God, and in this statement he says he has come. He has come with purpose. John 6, 38 says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. I'm not like anyone you've ever met. I am 100% man, but I am 100% your deity, the one that was promised to you. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man had come to seek and save the lost. So Jesus says that he has come, but he hasn't come without intention or reason. Jesus comes not for the righteous, but for the repentant. Jesus comes for the sinner. That God came for the sinner. Listen, until this point, they'd been taught all their lives that their holiness was dependent on their separation from the sinner. Their holiness was being segregated from those who were considered bad. 
Now, in just a matter of weeks, Jesus is revealing himself as God and that God is in this passage being chastised for not only spending time, but in the presence of sinners and not just a few, many sinners. Not only just spending time with him, letting them touch him, sharing food with them, and yes, of course, calling them as disciples. He came to call the sinner or the convicted. Now, Levi was a tax collector. This is the scourge of their society. Levi was a tax collector that had, in fact, in an act of treason, sold his soul to Rome to make a fortune by taxing his Hebrew brother. What does this mean? Tax booths weren't just given to anyone, for, for that matter. One, they were always put on auction, and they would go to the highest bidder. So what, what this tells us is Levi who is named after the tribe he comes from, the Levitical tribe, the one not counted amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because this is the priestly tribe. They are the intercessors between God's people and him. So he is literally named as he comes from a priestly tribe, very cognizant and intentionally trained in religious moralism. He knew he had a role, but he turned his back on all of that to become a very wealthy man a wealthy man who ran a tax franchise. He was the highest bidder and gets this booth. There were people lined up to come and take one if anyone were to relieve themselves of it, to let go. What happens is Rome sets up these tax booths, and they can be set up wherever. We're going to talk about the, the, their very sophisticated tax system as simply as I can. But... These booths are set up, and there's a tax determined for Rome. On top of that, the tax collector can charge whatever he wishes. So this is a very lucrative business. People make a lot of money doing this. What he is telling us is this, that Levi cares about nothing other than money. He doesn't care what the Pharisees think. He doesn't care what Rome thinks. He doesn't care what you think. He cares about money, and he knows it. Because he had set himself up as a tax collector, one who would literally tax his own brother. Here's what this looked like. If Rome required 10%, then in the flexible tax, he could tax whatever he wanted above that and keep it for himself. So sometimes people would walk by his tax booth. It was a border, it was a border tax booth, so you're crossing from one province to the next, and he might say on a good day, oh, you owe me 11%. And that you caught him on a good day. He's keeping 1% for himself. But say you caught him on a bad day. Say the very next day. He decides, you know what? You owe me 80%. He could do it lawfully. And if you did not have the 80%, he said, well, yesterday was 11%. That's all I have. Give me what you have. You see, the tax collector was a part of what was known as the Galilean Mafia. This is the mob, and they had the right to do whatever they wished. So he would look at them and say, you know what? Give me what you have, but you still owe me. And they should expect, under the direction of Levi, for a couple thugs to show up later at the house and shake them down. Beat them, hurt them, publicly humiliate them so that all the people knew you do not cross the mob, you do not cross a tax collector. Tax collectors were not allowed to come to synagogue publicly. 
Tax collectors were not allowed to testify in open court. Why? Because of their untrustworthiness. Who would sell their soul to Rome and turn their back on their Hebrew brother and tax them at such a high rate? This is the scourge of their society. And once the tax that was paid to Rome that was owed them, there was one, one who would uh, work the contract for, for the people between, between the booth to Rome. Now, the taxpayers um, were at the mercy of the tax collector. And there were two types of tax. There's a fixed tax, which we're all kind of familiar with. That's like income tax, land tax, you know, uh, like property tax. Everyone familiar? You live in the U.S. So this is a fixed tax, and everyone had to pay it. This was paid to the goodbye. The people were called the goodbye. The other tax was called the flexible tax, and this tax was something we also experience here. This is on toll roads, toll bridges, import, export, transport, borders, much like this one with Levi. And this was governed by the moquez. The smaller moquez are those that you'd find in the booth. A larger moquez was someone that was like a regional director and dealt with the contracts between Rome and the people. So once that booth collector had paid his tax to Rome, and the larger moquez, his boss, had, had taken his cut, Everything that was left was for Levi. This is Levi, the smaller Moquez, who's robbing the people eye to eye. Levi, as he sat in his tax booth at the edge of Capernaum, Jesus has gone by because he's just heard about this paralytic being healed, and he has to get out where there's no bordering and teach the people. He's re-entering Capernaum as he's coming past Levi's house. We've, we know a couple things about Jesus so far, that He is God and He can perceive our thoughts afar off. Levi would have seen and heard about the effects of Jesus' ministry, specifically that given Jesus' fame in this region. Jesus could forgive, heal, take, uh, fix the paralyzed, heal the leper, heal the sick, and even cast out demons. And He had passed by His way on the Sea of Galilee and was now coming back. The people said they'd never seen anything like this. I believe that Levi was counted amongst those people. This amazement extended to him because he'd heard too. Levi was apparently tired of his life, convicted by his life choices and lifestyle. I think that he was tired of being a slave to Rome and hated by his own. Why do we know this? I think that he wants to simply have a second chance. I think that he wants a new way, and he knows, just like the paralytic, that all other options are out the window except by Jesus. If Jesus can make the paralyzed walk, and if Jesus can heal the paralytic, and if Jesus can heal those who are stricken to death with fever, then maybe, just maybe, Jesus can fix me and give me that second chance. How many people say you wanted a second chance by Jesus? So he saw Jesus as his only option. How do we derive this? Well, Jesus has already shown they can perceive those thoughts. So as he's walking by Matthew, he doesn't, or Levi, he doesn't say his name. He doesn't say anything. He says two words. What does he say? Follow me. These two words, follow me, are the only way that we can derive that Jesus already knew what the motive and the desire that was in Levi's heart, that he himself was convinced that he was a sinner, the scourge of society, and he wanted to repent of it. No other, no other leader 
to this point would have ever turned and called to a, a tax collector and said, follow me, be my disciple. Jesus perceived that Levi was repented. And so Levi trusted Jesus and followed. You need to understand what he's doing when he follows. Luke remembers this account and he says that Levi forsook all others. He would have to forsake everything else. He'd have to forsake all of it. Why? Because he's in a profession that isn't fishing. Hello? Peter could return to fishing after embarrassing Jesus and denying him three times. He could go back there. But what did I say about these tax franchises? There was a line of vultures ready to take up the moment he walked away. That business wouldn't be there to go back to. But you don't just walk away from the mob. You don't just walk away from the mafia. You don't know him as Levi because he wrote his gospel, and it's the first one we see in the four synoptic gospels. We know him as Matthew. And we don't have any scriptural references to when his name was changed or how it was changed or who changed it other than we derive that he changed himself. Why? Because Levi was someone who was going to walk around following Jesus, had left a text franchise, and, and was going to continually be looking over his shoulder because he had just walked away from the Galilean mafia. And then he was going to serve and lead amongst the people that he had been robbing from. This man not only needed a new life, he needed a new name. So you know him as Matthew. And the interesting point about Matthew's gospel, if you go through and read it, you're going to see the theme of Matthew's gospel is kingship. And I just think that's fascinating, that Jesus changed his heart so much that he wrote a gospel that says, I left kingship of Rome because my eyes had seen the true king. Hello? I left where I sold my soul for money to the king of Rome just to have life in Jesus because my eyes had seen the true king, the Messiah. Levi would have had no business to go back to, so Levi got a fresh start. There was no going back. He had a new life. And Levi willingly followed. Forsaking everything else, he immediately gets up, follows Jesus, and then has Jesus as an honored guest in his house with all the rest of his tax collector and prostitute friends. When you see the word sinner here in this context, that's what they're talking about. He dines with tax collectors and prostitutes. Where do we derive this? Because they would use the word sinner profoundly like this when it was someone who was caught in sexual sin. Luke 7, 36-39, remember that the prostitute showed up in the midst of Jesus when he was invited to have dinner at a Pharisee's house. And it says that she wiped his feet with her tears and perfume. Jesus was Levi or Matthew's only hope, and thus Matthew knew that he was their only hope as well. No one else in any religious construct to this point would have been reaching out to this unsavory bunch, but yet Jesus did not avoid them. He didn't walk past them. He didn't push by them. They would have offended religious leaders at this time. Jesus welcomes them in, and instead of being offended by them, he dines with them. He lets them touch him. He calls them as his disciple, and this challenges the scribe or the self-righteous. This challenges the self-righteous at the core of who they are and everything they've known religiously to this point. 
Because the construct of the day depended on their separation. It depended on segregation. Pharisees and other religious leaders believed and taught that they themselves were good. Thus, they were loved by God and separate from the people. The opposite was true. They believed that they taught tax collectors, prostitutes, shepherds, the deaf, the demon-possessed, that they were horrible and hated by God, thus struck in with their sinful and unacceptable state. They literally taught that these people who suffered with illness or had made choices like Levi's were hated by God. And now God shows up in their midst, reveals himself, and he is spending time with the people that all the religious leaders have said were hated by God. You see this? Jesus is counter to their culture, counter to everything they'd experienced. You remember in the Advent story, who, does Je- who is Jesus' arrival told to first? The shepherd. The shepherd was a sinner, much like the tax collector. Who does he dine with? The prostitute. Who does he let wash his feet? The prostitute. Who does he go live with and call his disciple? The tax collector. Jesus is counter to the culture. And he, he even expounds on it when he gives a parable in Luke 8. He says this, He also told this parable of someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down upon everyone else. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, listen, I tell you, this one went down from his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Truth is, Jesus was counter to culture. I wonder if Jesus shared this parable with a Pharisee because he The Pharisee was staring right at Levi as he did it. Let me ask you a question. I have a tax collector who follows me. He's my disciple. And he's heard me say that no one is righteous. No one is good but God alone. And in fact, what I call you to do is not just hate your enemy, but to love your enemy. And my tax collector beats his chest as he prays, knowing that he doesn't deserve to be in this moment. He got a million, a chance in a lifetime, and he's taken it. And when he hears me say, you're to love your enemy, he knows that's an impossibility in his, in his own strength. So he goes, God, forgive me. And the Pharisee goes, well, I'm good. Jesus was called, Matthew 19, the wine-bibber, the drunkard, the glutton, the friend of sinners. Revelations 3.20 says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come in and I eat with him. I sit with him and him with me. Jesus is dining and drinking with sinners. And not just a few. It says many. So much so that it says it twice to me with emphasis that there were several that were following him to become a disciple, communing with him, touching him, sharing space with him, and becoming followers. All because Jesus did one thing. He treated them like humans. Let me say that again. Jesus treated the one who knew they could not save themselves like humans with love and acceptance. He ate with them. 
He touched them, let them touch him. And he even became in relationship, like a discipleship relationship, because he loved them. He's the one they came for, and he treated them as human. The Pharisees of his day didn't kill Jesus for being too good. They killed him for being bad and for hanging with bad company, but that's why he came. Jesus came to call the convicted and to challenge the self-righteous and ultimately to conquer sin. Let me ask you, are you good? We need to ask ourselves this question with a little bit of conviction. Are we too good for Jesus? Like, if Jesus were to show up in our day, would Jesus come to your house? I've been asking this question to myself all week. Would Jesus even come to my house? Because here's the thing. Jesus showed up in their day, and who did he go spend time with? Those who cussed too much, drank too much, had impure thoughts too much. He went to the people who knew they needed a Savior, not the people who needed to be convinced they needed one. He didn't go spend time with those who thought they were good and self-righteous and were banking on their goodness. He went to spend time with those who knew they couldn't save themselves. He came to my house. He came to me, the unlovely, who believed all I suffered at the hands of others and all that I forced others to suffer at my hand. He came to my house, one who thought he was truly unlovable, and he loved me. Hello? Church, I am curious if we are a people who are willing to get our hands dirty because we're willing to dine with sinners. We're willing to dine with the very ones whom Jesus came to save because they, like us, are counted amongst the separate. We are no different. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account or the house you live or what you wear. This doesn't define you as good. It doesn't matter what you know. We ought to find ourselves prostrate at the altar when we are more concerned about Chick-fil-A shutting down for a month to remodel than we are the sinner that we come in contact with weekly who knows they're a sinner, but we continue to look past them because we do not love them like Jesus. Does this make sense, church? Are we too good for Jesus? Does Jesus even convict us any longer to beat our chests and go, I can't even look to heaven, but thank God I had a million chances with you. Thank God I've been redeemed and I am no longer Levi, but Matthew. And the people that I live with, that I'm in context with, they drink too much, they cuss too much, and they know they need a Savior. I don't spend more time learning about Him. I spend more time living like Him. Breaking bread, sharing space, communing. Because Jesus loved the sinner. 
He loved me. Matthew 25, 40 says this, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. Do we serve amongst the least of these? Do we serve amongst those who know they cannot save themselves? They count themselves amongst the bad, not the good. Do we, do we love them because we're convinced that we were bad in need of a Savior too? That our sin counts us amongst them. It doesn't separate us from them, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we, just like them, have the answer. So if we, just like him, will live amongst them in hope, they will have hope as well. They may just find themselves in the waters of baptism because their life has changed. Hello? Or do we have to have Jesus convince us that we need a Savior? As we build empires unto ourselves and our comfortable existence here on the planet, showing up and doing good and acting good, and sounding good, hoping that the self-righteousness of our goodness will save us, not convinced that we were never good, in need of a Savior, and the heart change that took place within me because Jesus stepped in made me begin to love others instead of living and loving myself above all else. It called me to love others more. Then I loved myself. Hello? Do you know why Levi turned when he said, follow me? It's because Levi was done loving himself. He was done worshiping himself. He was done in the aspiration of money and decided that what Jesus said in Matthew 6 was true. You cannot serve God and stuff. You can have one or the other. So here's my question this morning as we wrap up. Are we the scribe or are we the sinner? Are we the self-righteous Pharisee banking on our goodness? Or are we the repentant tax collector with a ministry before those who know they need Him? He didn't come to save those who believed that they could save themselves. He came to save those who knew they couldn't. He gave His life as a substitution for those that knew they deserved to lose their own. And on the night that He was betrayed... The night that he had that Passover with his disciples, he said, I've longed to eat this Passover. He, did, he, he introduced the world to the communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. As he took a piece of bread to represent his body, he took the cup of wine to represent his blood. And to tell the story of a substitutionary sacrifice that would take place at the very end of this week, we'll commemorate it and how it atoned for us and how our lives got a chance how many of you are grateful he's the God of a million chances? Yes. 